like to start out by giving an additional historical picture of Islam around this time, and one that, uh, to some extent, another paying customer, a, um, a picture which, to some extent, balances some of the horrific stuff we talked about uh, Monday. So, there was what has been called an Islamic golden age. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about that, because it was actually in the midst of this golden age that these invasions started. The Islamic world uh, was very large. It stretched all the way from North Africa, of course, the Arabian Peninsula, and, and very far east. And so you had all kinds of people from different backgrounds who had converted to Islam. Some of them were semi-barbarian. Some of them were extremely violent. Some of them were very cultured. So you had all different kinds of people. So it's not just Muslims coming to India. It's certain people, Muslims from certain cultures and certain backgrounds, from certain geographic areas and so on. And they were, they were very different. But let's talk in general. Uh, so during the Muslim conquests of the 7th and the 8th centuries, Muhammad, of course, is around 560 to 6, 622, Islam is really established. And so... Uh, so even in the 7th, that means just after Muhammad, there were all these conquests, all this expansion. So these armies, uh, Rashidun armies established an Islamic empire, one of the ten largest empires in history. The Islamic Golden Age was inaugurated by the middle of the 8th century, so by the 700s, which is just about a century and a quarter after Muhammad, there is a type of Golden Age. And what, what caused this is there was the ascension of the opposite caliphate, remember the Khalifa. He's the temporal, the worldly, political, and religious leader. So you have caliphates, sort of like Muslim dynasties. And uh, the capital, the capital of the Muslim world, like the political, military, and cultural capital of the Muslim world, moved from uh, Damascus to Baghdad. I know you're all stunned by that. Now, the significance of this is, the significance of this move that, you know, basically they took the caliphate and they got a bunch of, I guess, moving vans and trucks. And, and, and the significance of moving to Baghdad is that Damascus, Damascus was, you could say, the leading city of the Arab world. And of course, Islam started in Arabia. And... Muhammad himself uh, described Arabia before he did his thing as Jahiliya, which means the darkness. He just saw it as total dark ages. Uh, it was, I mean, we won't go into all the gory details, but it was not the most advanced culture in the world, according to Muhammad. And so it starts out as this Arabian thing. They're, they're semi-nomadic. They live in a desert. And, uh, but what happens is, as Islam begins to spread, and so in the beginning, the capital is in Damascus, the, you could say the biggest and most important Arab city. But then, uh, it moves to Baghdad, which at that time was part of the Persian Empire. And as many Americans probably will never actually figure out, Persians are not Arabs. And so... <laughs> So if you remember from your intensive, uh, diligent studies of the Indo-European issues, ancient Persian, 
ancient Persian is a dialect of ancient Sanskrit. And ancient Persian, uh, the Zoroastrian culture, was very much part of Indo-European culture. In many ways, very close to it. It was, it was like a cousin of Vedic culture. So, uh, so you have basically this Arab movement, this Arab movement, Semitic movement, speaking a Semitic language, Arabic, uh, converting a very important Indo-European culture area, namely Persia. And in Persia, I think uh, it's, we can say without uh, offending more than 37 different ethnic communities, I think it's safe to say that, the, that in Persia, there was actually a much more, you could say, sophisticated culture. In Persia, you had this very ancient, sophisticated culture. The Persian Empire was quite a sophisticated operation. So with the conversion of, of Persia, the capital is moved to Baghdad, because Baghdad is part of the Persian Empire. Baghdad is part of the Persian Empire. Alexander got his big empire basically by conquering the Persian Empire. And Alexander died in Babylon, which is very close to Baghdad. So anyway, so that area that the, uh, you know, Mesopotamia, Meso means the middle, Potamos in Greek means river, so the area between the rivers, Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent and the Tigris Euphrates Rivers. So anyway, the capital moving to Baghdad means that now the leading cultural power, intellectual and cultural power, even political power, in the Islamic world is no longer simply Arabic. It's actually Persian in a sense. And that's why it moved to Baghdad. So now what that means is that, of course, when you have these sort of uh, totally out-of-control wild men going to India like Muhammad of Ghazni, just sort of killing and looting. But once they establish this Delhi Sultanate, once they actually establish a, a political uh, dynasty in India, and because at that time, uh, it, Baghdad is still the place, so all this culture starts flowing in. So, uh, so you, what's interesting about the culture that flowed in with the, Islam, with the Muslim conquest is that in some ways it is Indo-European culture. It's not a completely, it's not like here's, here's uh, India with this obvious Indo-European or Vedic culture, and now this Semitic culture is coming from Arabia. Because by the time Islamic culture really started coming into India, it was itself, the Islamic culture was already a hybrid between the ancient Persian, Persian culture, which of course is Indo-European, and Arabic culture. So it's already a hybrid, and, and then it gets hybridized again uh, in India. Because then you have, in other words, the culture that comes in is sort of Persian-Arabic, and then it mixes with Hindu culture, so it gets, it's another hybridization. So it's, uh, well, anyway, you see where it's, it, it's kind of complex. But that's what you get. So I wanted to point that out. And then, um, any questions on that? Yes. Gandhi from Turkey? The book says that he was... Well, I, yeah, it says so in a good book. Yeah, the Turks were actually quite prominent, and they were a little out of control, too, at least the ones that went to India. Yes? Can you explain a little bit about how the, cult, the Indian culture flowed into Baghdad, um, and how much of the Islamic invasion was, like, hostile and looting, and how much of it was... Um, 
Okay. 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 Yeah. Maybe I'll address that by first saying a little more about the golden age of Islam, and then we'll get. To, and if I forget to get to that point, stand up and shout or something. <laughs> so, um, so now you have this new capital in Baghdad, and, and this golden age, in a sense, will last until the mid 13th century, the 1200s, when the Mongols come into Baghdad and basically just, you know, shoot up Dodge. They just come in and, you know basically kill, rape, loot, and all those good male things. So, so that's the golden age, uh, from the time that the capital is transferred to Baghdad until the fall of Baghdad into the Mongols, who eventually become Muslims also, and, you know, finally everybody's happy. So anyway, so the, now we're in Baghdad. This is where the Arabian Nights come from, you know, this culture, exotic culture of the Arabian Nights. So we're in Baghdad. And uh, the Abbasids, this new dynasty in Baghdad, influenced by Quranic injunctions and hadith, which is the uh, things that aren't in the Quran, but they're taken from the life of Muhammad, things he said, and so on. So they have sayings like, quote, the ink of the scholar, the ink of the scholar is more holy than the blood of martyrs. Bless you. So the idea here is, this was a very intellectually sophisticated culture, at least among certain people. The ink of the scholar is more holy than the blood of martyrs. Uh, during this period, Muslim, the Muslim world would become the unrivaled, this is a Muslim version, un, un, unrivaled intellectual center for science, philosophy, medicine, and education. As the Abbasids championed the cause of knowledge, they established a, quote, house of wisdom in Baghdad. And it was a very, I mean, they were really into culture. Cordoba, which was, uh, of course, a Muslim city in, in southern Spain, was at one time perhaps the most sophisticated city in Europe when it was a Muslim city. And La Reconquista, you know, the, of the Spanish, in some ways, kind of, the culture sort of dropped in Spain with that. So you have these very sophisticated Muslim cities, culturally sophisticated, tolerant. The Jews, for example, in Spain did much better under the Moors, under the Muslims, than they did under the uh, Inquisitions of the Spaniards, you know, the Catholic Spanish, who were actually much less tolerant and much less, in some ways, well, cultured. And so the, the, the Jews who had flourished in southern Spain under the Moors then were persecuted by the Inquisitions after La Reconquista, when the Europeans took over again. So it's, uh, I wanted to be fair to give this balanced picture of what was going on in the world, despite Mohammed of Ghazni. So, Muslim and non-Muslim scholars sought to translate and gather all the world's knowledge into Arabic. Many classic works of antiquity, otherwise lost, were translated into Arabic. For example, famously, the Muslims preserved Aristotle. Greek philosophy was sort of saved, especially Aristotle, by the Muslim scholars. Uh, so, they were translated into Arabic, then to Turkish, Persian, Hebrew, Latin. During this period, the Muslim world was a cauldron of cultures collected synthesized and significantly advanced, uh, and they, they collected, synthesized, and significantly advanced knowledge they gathered from ancient Iraqi, Roman, Chinese, Indian, Persian, Egyptian, North African, Greek, and Byzantine civilizations. So they were just going wild over culture. And uh, so, and they were rival, just as Baghdad was, in fact, a major intellectual center in the world back then. And there were other ri uh, uh, rival cities or major intellectual centers, cultural centers in the Muslim world, such as 
uh, Cairo and Cordoba in Spain. Cairo's in Egypt. Americans aren't supposed to know much about geography. <laughs> so, so, that's the golden age of Islam. So while that's going on, you get some people from farther east, from Central Asia, who are kind of out of control, and they invade India, and they raid, and, and they also slaughter Muslims. Just as nowadays, the vast, vast majority of, of the victims of, of, let's say, Muslim terrorism are Muslims. Muslims are, I mean, the vast majority of victims of Muslim terrorism, and, and they would brutalize each other as they were fighting each other. So, so that's the golden age. Any questions about that? So after, after the battles, and they, and they sort of take over political control in certain parts of North India, the culture starts coming in. And with it, the Sufis. I want to talk about the Sufis. Then we're going to talk about the mobile leaders. Akbar, the good guy, and then finally Ronze, the bad guy. And, and I think you'll agree once you hear about them. So... Uh, the Sufis. Uh, I mentioned the Sufis because when the Muslims came to India, some of them were just politicians and warriors, but there were serious religious people, spiritual people, and mystics, theologians that also ended up in India. And so I want to talk about them. The Sufis were very prominent because they were something like, if you think of the Shramana movement, in ancient India, they were some of them were like the Shramana people, ascetics, wandering sages. Uh, they were the yogis. They were the also the, in terms of the Bhakti movement. They the, the Muslim the Muslim Bhakti movement was also the Sufis. So they're very important. They were very significant. They were a big part of the Muslim world from a spiritual, religious, and intellectual point of view. And they were also something like the Jesuits. If you think about you know. During the Spanish conquista, the Spanish colonial endeavor, uh, la cruz y la espada, you know, the cross and the sword. And the cross and the sword often were fighting with each other. How have you seen that movie about Jesuits in Argentina where they were actually killed by the Spanish uh, politicians? Because, because inevitably, when you have people who are, let's say the Jesuits, who were uh, learned, they were, they were highly educated people, and they went to, they would, they would go to different places. I mean, I'm from California, and, and there's, you can see in California the mission system. Like, with, you know, Los Angeles was a mission. San Diego, uh, San Luis Obispo. If you look at all these missions, the, the Jesuits would come in and actually form ashrams. Ashrams in the sense they would actually form communities where they would teach the indigenous people, among other things, you know, whatever they thought was valuable in terms of crafts. They would educate them in European culture as far as possible. And uh, and they would become very sympathetic. Some of them were just naturally liberals. If you look at America, for example, uh, university towns tend to be more liberal than the country in general. And if you look at a map, let's say, of, of, of the way counties vote, where you see that, um, what is it, red is Democrat, right? Red, okay, red is Republican, blue is Democrat. So if you look at these maps, you'll see that Alaska County is a little blue island. <laughs> and if you look at Athens, Georgia, that's a blue island. And if you look at Charlottesville, Virginia, that's a blue island. So, you had, so in the same way, they had, the Jesuits were like little blue islands in a sense. People that were more, you could say, more liberal, more into, quote-unquote, the people. And the same thing with the Sufis. The Sufis, these mystics, they were, even in India... 
on the one hand, they were something like, it was like the sword and the cross, where the Jesuits, I'm sorry, the Sufis were the missionary wing, the mystics, the teachers, the sages. And it was a double-edged sword because sometimes, since Sufism had to stay within the parameters of the Quran, on the one hand, they believed in, uh, well, they had these uh, these words like, um, I think I wrote them actually, yeah, Tahid, unity in God, or Wadad Shuhud, unity of witness, of perception, appearance. So you have Sufi yogis that are into the oneness. They're actually sort of like, almost like the Kanishad people. And they see the oneness of God. They're mystics, they're spiritualists. They're not just sectarian religionists. But on the other hand, and so they're sympathetic to Hinduism. On the other hand, uh, there are other Sufis now, really just like there were other Jesuits that tended to hang out more in the Vatican and not in the uh, indigenous areas of the New World, who are courtiers. They're kind of like hired the- theology guns, you know, the- sort of religious hired guns for the political powers. And they even sometimes uh, sponsored j- uh, jihad. There were even religious wars that Sufis took part in. So they would sometimes become instruments of repressive uh, Muslim political regimes. But there were other Sufis that were uh, other Sufis that were actually liberal, even came into conflict with the Muslim politicians or kings or whatever, because they, you know, tended to be liberal and sympathetic. And yeah, but, you know, the indigenous people got a great thing going here, and we're all one. So anyway, so I'll talk about the Sufis. So who are they? They are the mystical dimension of Islam. I talked about that, and. Uh, the def- classical Sufi scholars define Sufism as a science whose objective is the reparation of the heart, turning the heart away from all else but God. So it's a devotional thing. You have to give yourself completely to God. Uh, it's a science through which one can know how to travel into the presence of the divine, purify one's inner self. Well, it's translated from filth, tough love, and beautify it with a variety of praiseworthy traits. Develop good character, love God, be kind, be compassionate. So it's very much like these devotional movements in Hinduism. They're also called darvishas, uh, like whirling dervish. You know, they're sort of like the original mystical spiritual breakdancers. And so a dervish, uh, in, in uh, Arabic, uh, the word refers to door, so a darvish, or a dervish literally means when it goes from door to door. They were mendicants, like the shamanism. So... Any questions about that, about the Sufis? I mean, we could give a whole class, a whole course on the Sufis. But um, So if not, then what was going on politically? Uh, again, the, well, there was a political change. There was a huge political sea change. A guy named, uh, what was his name? Um, Baba. It was a Mongol who invaded and overthrew the S- Delhi Sultanate, the Delhi Sultanate and uh, established what became known as the Mughal Empire. And so Akbar is the grandson of that uh, Babar who actually established the Mughal dynasty, kicked, uh, sort of, you know, overthrew the Sultanate in Delhi, and the Mughals took over. So Akbar is the grandfather of that person. Uh, he ruled from 1556 to 1605. Uh, his, his own father was a political refugee because if you study dynastic history, Muslim dynastic history in India, or for that matter in England or other places, it's incredible uh, how much uh, violence there was. 
I mean, how often people in the same royal families killed each other, imprisoned each other. It was just like, it, it's just amazing. It, was just, it seems like you wonder how they had time to do anything else. They were so busy killing each other for power. But uh, so the history of, the dynastic history of these Muslim rulers, especially in Delhi where the stakes were very high, is extremely bloody and violent. And Akbar's own father was a political refugee. And uh, they were Sunnis but they had received a certain kindness and hospitality when they were really down and out from this uh, Shiite ruler. So Akbar grew up as a child, even though he came from a fanatical Sunni community, and there was all kinds of violence and war between Sunnis and Shiites, well, just as there is today, uh, in India. In India. And so Akbar, as a child, realized that, hey, a lot of Shiites are nice people. And they actually helped us and saved us. And so he kind of grew up with a more, with a broader perspective. And uh, what's interesting is Akbar is very, very popular in India. Here's, again, quoting from a history book uh, written by a scholar who teaches in America, but who is Indian. And who is definitely very sympathetic to, to the Indian perspective in his historiography. He says, Akbar was a ruler of the true Indian tradition. The true Indian tradition, allowing the right of religious freedom to all his subjects. He had grown up in liberal, tolerant traditions. His ancestors, though they were Sunnis, had out of a liberal... Anyway, I, I did that. So Akbar is, you know, he's, he's uh, one of the great leaders in Indian history from the point of view of Indians. And uh, he actually invented his own religion. In his personal life, we'll talk about it. In his personal life, Akbar was concerned... Uh, that his queen had not born in the sun. He approached a Sufi sheikh, in other words, a Sufi mystic, a Sufi leader, who blessed him to have a son, and so he became really devoted to that Sufi. So you see the influence of Sufism. These were like the Brahmins. They were like the Brahmins, the sages, before the Muslims. And Akbar had a Hindu wife. I think he had more than one wife, but one of his wives was a, was a Hindu wife. I should also point out that there was a very important political alliance because if you know Indian geography, okay, say here's Delhi. Well, okay. India is kind of like a diamond. And uh, so let's say here's Delhi here. And then the next state over is uh, Rajasthan. And uh, you have these Rajputs from the Sanskrit word Rajputra, which means prince, king's son. And many of the Rajputs, as you may have read, were actually descended from earlier invaders, Scythians, Bactrians, warriors who had invaded India somewhat successfully and then became Hindus. So uh, Rajasthan, which means the land of kings, Rajasthan, Stan, Stan, place. So the name of the state is the, the, the land of kings. And so you had all these warriors uh, who converted to Hinduism. Many of them became, so they became these Rajputs, this very fierce warrior population in Rajasthan. In fact, uh, one of the great cities there, what is it? Uh, Jai, Jaipur, the victory city. Isn't that the capital of Rajasthan? Jaipur? So anyway, uh, in so uh, there was an alliance. There was a political. Akbar had a political alliance with Rajasthan. He never, he never totally conquered them. You couldn't really totally conquer these people. So he had a political alliance, and he married a Hindu Rajput princess, Akbar. So the shows, and, and it was very common that Muslim rulers would have Hindu generals, advisors, 
and so on and so forth. So, so there was a good deal of integration under certain conditions, though. So Akbar uh, went beyond merely tolerating other religions. He actually started his own religion. He wanted to unite all the religions. So he started this thing called Deen e Ilahi, which means the divine faith. He started his own religion. And he invited leaders of several faiths, Islam, Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, and Zoroastrianism, and held elaborate discussions with them. So here's a quote from Badawni, well-known historian at Akbar's court. This is a guy who's the historian at the court of Akbar, who doesn't like what Akbar's doing, because Badawni is more of a fanatical Muslim. He says, like, you know, he can't say it publicly, but the emperor is kind of flaky on religious issues. So this is his description. The emperor came to Fatpur. There he used to spend much time in the hall of worship, which he built, hall of worship, in the company of learned men and sheikhs, and especially on Friday night, when he would sit up there the whole night, continually occupied in discussing questions of religion. So he would invite saints and theologians from all the different religions, and he would stay up all night talking about religious issues. Uh, whether fundamental or vital, the learned men used to draw the sword of tongue on the battlefield of mutual contradiction and opposition, and the sects reached such a pitch that they would call one another fools and heretics. So they were, at least they were fighting with words. So this is Akbar. Starts his own religion, which didn't work. But anyway, syncretistic, trying to unite all the religions, there's complete religious freedom. He abolishes special taxes on non-Muslims. He's really a very eclectic guy. And a very successful ruler. He actually uh, was politically very successful also. And historians attribute often his success to the fact that he could get along with everybody. He respected other religions and therefore he could make alliances. He could build friendships and he just got lots of support. He was a very, in that sense, a very good politician, a coalition builder, a team builder, and sincerely interested in all these different religions. So at that point, uh, India was relatively united politically and religiously completely at peace, at least most of India that was under Akbar. Any question on that? That's Akbar. Now, his son is Jahangir. The next, his son is called Jahangir. And Jahangir pretty much sort of kept his father's policy going. He was not so enthusiastic about other religions. He really didn't have that inclination, but at least he respected his father enough to keep the same system going. Uh, the problem with Jahangir is that, uh, well, one problem is he became an alcoholic and somewhat dysfunctional uh, because of that habit. And, and therefore he kind of turned the kingdom over, or it was sort of taken over by his wife, Nur Jahan. And uh, she was more, I think, of a, a strong Muslim than, than he was. But to show you how these moguls could be enlightened in their administration, this mogul story is going to end on a sort of a sour note with the bad guy here. But anyway, here's an interesting description. Very early in his reign, Jahangir, who is Akbar's son, had a 30 gauze long, I don't know how long gauze is, but however long a gauze is, this was 30 gauzes. So you just imagine. Very early in his reign, he had a 30 gauze long gold chain of justice, in capital letters, a gold chain of justice, 
with 60 bells attached to it. He had it stretched from the wall of the Agra fort, where the capital was, Agra, the Taj Mahal is, to a stone column in the public square. Anyone, anyone who felt justice had not been done to him or her could draw the emperor's attention by pulling the chain. It symbolized easy access to the emperor and the emperor's desire to be just and fair to all his subjects. And of course, Akbar himself used to send people around the kingdom to make sure everyone's getting a fair shake. And now here's a gold chain with bells on it so anyone, anyone from any class could just go ring the bell and the emperor could hear the bell. And the emperor knew that someone claims that they've been a victim of injustice. So everyone had access. To, that was the idea, at least. So, uh, now, Jahangir treated Hindus, Jews, Zoroastrians, Christians, and Muslims alike and continued with the official celebrations of Hindu festivals in his palace, a practice started by his father. So it's just like even example. Nowadays in America, let's say you have a Christian president, but on Hanukkah, he'll light like a, have a little ceremony, they light a Hanukkah candle in the White House or something. And they do things like that, or they'll do things, or sometimes even Hindu and Muslim things. So this thing where, where, where the head political figure will show respect to all the different religions. So Akbar, who had a Hindu wife, would actually celebrate leading Hindu festivals, I'm sure like Deepavali for Ramchandra, or Janmashtami, the day of Krishna's birthday, and so on, it would actually be celebrated in the royal palace for various religions. And Jahangir continued this policy. Uh, so, then Jahangir's son was uh, Shah Jahan, who built the Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal was built in Agra because that's where the Mughals were hanging out then. That was their capital. And you know the story of the Taj Mahal, right? It was sort of like a memorial to his wife. I mean, that's pretty romantic, building one of the most beautiful, expensive buildings in the world. Your dead wife. So, so that shows that Mughal emperors could be very romantic. And also they had some really great architecture going on. They're known for that, actually, their architecture also. Now, Shah Jahan had a son who was a, sort of a fiend uh, named Aurangzeb. And the fun's over with Aurangzeb. Now, Aurangzeb was a fanatical Muslim. And, and what like, historians often say is he was the exact antithesis of his uh, great-grandfather, Akbar. So whatever Akbar was, Aurangzeb was exact opposite. Uh, for example... Aurangzeb, uh, he was always at war also, just as Akbar was sort of a team builder, politically united a lot of India, Aurangzeb was constantly at war. And he basically declared war on Hinduism. I mean, when he was, when he was, when, he also arrested his father, I should mention, which is, you know, not a nice thing to do. He arrested his father, and his father's one request was to be put in a prison that had a view of the Taj Mahal. So his father, Shah Jahan, spent the last part of his life imprisoned by his own son, Aurangzeb, and took over. And then there was kind of a fight for power, and Aurangzeb had a son, I'm sorry, a brother, who also wanted power, and 
he killed him. He killed his brother. And he, he killed his brother also because his brother was sort of very much into Hinduism. He had a brother who was very much into Hinduism and very much appreciated the Upanishads. In fact, translated from Sanskrit. Aurangzeb had a brother who translated like 56 or something Upanishads from Sanskrit into Persian and who was really a serious theologian. And so because of that, and also for political reasons, Aurangzeb had him arrested, paraded through the streets of the capital, and then executed uh, because he was sympathetic to Hinduism. So, uh, and then Aurangzeb, basically, I mean, I've personally seen Hindu temples that have, that were uh, attacked and by Aurangzeb. They would do things, not only Aurangzeb, but there were good guys and bad guys among the Muslim rulers. The bad guys, they would go to temples and take deities. And you have to understand for Hindus, this is God. God is actually present in this deity form. They would take these deities and, uh, you know, not only smash them, but stomp on them, have all the people stomp on them, defecate on them. They, they would just do everything humanly possible to desecrate, humiliate, and uh, that which was most sacred to Hindus. And so, in fact, uh, when Aurangzeb was attacking Vrindavan, Vrindavan is a very famous holy place in India. It's just, well, put it on the map here. This is Delhi. Vrindavan's right here. Uh, Krishna was born here in Mathura, and then here in Vrindavan, where Krishna grew up. So when the people in Vrindavan, where Krishna grew up as a child, and there are many temples, it, it, it's uh, sort of a city of temples, and, and incredibly beautiful temples, and when they heard Aurangzeb was coming, they took some of the important deities like Govindaji to Jaipur, this uh, city in Rajasthan, where Aurangzeb could never quite get at them. And so to this day, some of the most important deities from Vrindavan are still in Jaipur. There's a Govindaji temple, which is very famous, because deities were taken there out of fear of Aurangzeb. So Aurangzeb basically was at war with Hinduism. And because of this policy, uh, sort of this coalition that his great-grandfather put together dissolved. Aurangzeb was constantly at war, and actually he basically destroyed the Mughal Empire. Because it's like if you overreach, if, if you're too heavy... Well, I mean, I won't give modern analogies of leading politicians that are too heavy and kind of ruin their parties. So, <laughs> Aurangzeb, Aurangzeb was like that. And he, uh, he was so heavy and obnoxious and uh, stupid that basically the Mughal Empire collapsed after him. Because after all, look at the dates. Do the math. This is 1707, and guess who's already on the scene? Your good friends, the British. So, the British are already there, and they're watching all this, you know. <coughs> hey, we just came here to trade, you know. We're just looking for a good deal. Anyway, so, the English are there watching all this. They're watching Arunze blow out Hindustan. And uh, they're going to make their move. So that's what's happening. Um... Any questions so far? I, I, I mean, there's so much to tell, but I'm trying to give a basic historical picture. Now, uh, there were some things in, in the waning moments of this class. There was there were some things that um, are in our book by Professor Rodriguez, which I thought were interesting. And so, because there's 
there is a, I mean, for all these reasons, you can understand between Hindus and Muslims in India, there's an incredible amount of bad blood, and it's still there. There's just a lot of bad blood. And because India is now ruled, obviously, by Hindu majority, in the sense that the Muslims are a minority, sometimes get pushed around. So scholars have tended to see the Muslims as kind of like the poster boys for the oppressed minority. And, and they have been victims in some ways, but they also are not unskilled at victimizing. So, but there is all this bad blood. There is all this bad blood. And so scholars have tended to take the side sometimes of the Muslims. I, I, to my view, to an extent which I think sometimes stretches objectivity. I'm, I mean, I'm not saying that, that, that I don't believe in original sin personally, and I don't think any Muslim in India is guilty of anything that was done by any of his or her ancestors. And they certainly shouldn't be mistreated for that. So, but um, it sometimes I think goes too far to the other side. I'll give you an example of that from the book. Well, the book points out some of that, where, say, on page 275, um, it may be misleading to characterize, uh, talking about the, the, uh, the Muslim rule, this empire is under Muslim or Islamic rule because the ruling styles of Hindu and Muslim kingdoms of these states were fairly similar. In other words, trying to tell us that there was basically no difference between a Hindu and a Muslim ruler. Now, there were some excellent Muslim rulers and some terrible Hindu rulers. But in general, in general, there was a lot more religious freedom under Hindu rulers. In general. And so to say, like, ah, oh, they're all kind of the same, I think is going too far. That's not really what the history shows. And then uh, the book says, furthermore, it conveys the sense that, that obligatory mass conversion to Islam had occurred, which current historical analyses reject. In other words, it's not like whole societies were forced to convert to Islam. That didn't happen. But it also wasn't exactly religious freedom. Something in the middle happened, which Professor uh, Rodriguez will mention. Uh, conversion was often driven by desires for upward mobility. In other words, you're not forced to convert, but if you want a good job, you do have to convert. If you want to be able to pursue a particular career, you do have to convert. And at times, there was active persecution. I mean, consider normal human psychology. If you, let's say, go into a, a very large room, and let's say there's a few hundred people who are unarmed. Let's say someone goes in there and shoots three people. You're going to very, and, and let's say, I mean, you're going to very quickly, if the people don't rush you, and you have all these guns, you're going to take control of the situation. Everybody's going to be sort of you know, at bay. Because you've got the guns and they don't. And you can say if they all rush you, they take the guns away. But it's normal human psychology that they will often not rush you. And so you don't have to massacre that many people. You don't have to destroy that many temples before you start to create a psychology of fear. I mean, that's why you can see, I mean, you can look at, I mean, if you look at Saddam Hussein in Iraq, the Sunnis, of course, are a minority in Iraq. And therefore, because they were a minority, often minorities are more brutal because they have to terrorize the population in order to keep control of the majority. And of course, you can go too far and lose control. But uh, there, there's real truth. It's, it's actually true to say that to some extent, the Muslims, rulers in India, knowing they were a minority, knowing how dangerous their situation was, 
at times resorted to sort of uh, paradigmatic cruelty to keep that psychology of fear and to keep power, as occupiers typically do. So to say that they lived in peace, yes, for most of the time, they lived together peacefully because everyone knew the rules. The rules were, for example, that conversion is only one way. Hindus could convert to Muslims and be rewarded for that conversion. They could be highly rewarded, but if a Muslim converted to Hinduism formally, they would be killed. So it's not that there was a sort of like a free marketplace of religious ideas. Ideas. As a, so if you compare the competition between Jainism, Hinduism, and Buddhism, all religions coming from India, it's a very different situation. This is a very different situation now. So no, there weren't forced mass conversions, but neither was it a level playing field or a, a free marketplace of religious ideas. It certainly wasn't that. And then uh, we have the statement here that uh, historians also reject a prevailing popular view of systematic wholesale destruction of non-Muslim holy places, such as Buddhist monasteries and Hindu temples. So historians, as if uh, all of them reject the idea that there was wholesale destruction. But then, the very next sentence is, while some such places were definitely sacked for their wealth, and many religious centers were destroyed by zealous Muslim rulers. So in other words, historians reject the idea that there was wholesale destruction. Of course, many places were destroyed. So wholesale, many. Yeah, I suppose these are, they're different. And I mean, wholesale is not the same as many, but it was enough. It was enough to create a certain psychology. And I, personally, I think that in order to really understand India, you have to understand that the Muslims at a certain point involuntarily passed the colonial baton. Not really colonial because the Muslim rulers were Indian, but they passed the minority rule baton to the British. And so it's really only since 1947 that Indians are starting to rebuild their self-esteem, their self-confidence, after going through about almost a thousand years of often humiliating, violent uh, minority rule. And uh, many of the most beautiful cities in the world, like Vijayanagara in South India, Mathura in North India, really architecturally wonders of the world, fabulously wealthy, cultured cities, were destroyed brick by brick, stone by stone. Universities were destroyed. Temples were destroyed. And so to understand India today and the psychology, I, I think it helps to understand some of this history. Again, I, mean, I, I think we fairly mentioned a lot of the real glories of, of Islamic culture, and, and there's a lot that was glorious about it. But it's, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things going on, good and bad, and I'm, I'm trying to give a balanced picture. So, uh, then, and also in our book, since Islam is grounded in affirming, it's grounded in affirming its creed that Allah is the only God. The only God. In other words, this is the only real religion. And that's the basis of the religion. And again, you have the Sufis who have other ideas. Like, uh, well, can't get to everything. So, there were, so, because of this, there were obvious confrontations with the religious beliefs of the people in the Indian subcontinent. You all know by now, Indian history, this, and you, many of you pointed out in your papers, that 
you know, there's this religious freedom, there's all kinds of things going on. Major religions can rise, like Buddhism or Jainism, and start to really cut into the Vedic Hindu market share, and no one fights a war about it. It's just, you know, they debate. And now you have this Middle Eastern religion come in, very tribal, with the idea that this is the only real religion. And uh, so the practices of Hindus are characteristically diverse. There's tolerance. It is this characteristic variety in Hinduism that was particularly problematic to Islamic theology. In other words, it was Hindu tolerance and inclusivism which is particularly annoying and problematic to the Muslims. <laughs> the tolerance and the respect for diversity. That's what they really thought was evil. And so... Uh, Another statement, Islam also promotes a spiritual egalitarianism that conflicted with the Hindu caste system. This is true to some extent. Don't forget that the first great dynasty in Delhi, the Sultanate, was a slave dynasty because Muslim rulers, Muslims for all their egalitarianism, had slaves. And kingship or caliphateship or sultanship or whatever was hereditary. There was a ruling caste, and there were slaves. So while they promoted uh, egalitarianism, not completely. Not completely. It might not have been as hierarchical as the super-structured Hindu society, but they had slaves and hereditary rulers and all kinds <coughs> of things. So, uh, well... Time's almost up. Oh, Kabir. Secretism. Last thing. That, um, Kabir. I'll read a poem by Kabir and explain why I think it's beautiful and problematic. Because there were intelligent, spiritually minded, even mystical people, Muslim and Hindu, that said, come on, let's stop this sectarian strife. You know, let's just, we're all worshiping the same God, that kind of thing. Which is very popular today in America. So Kabir writes, O seeker, where are all you looking for me? Where are all you? I am right with you. I am not to be found in mosques, temples, the Kaaba or Kailas, the mountain of Lord Shiva. Nor am I found through rituals, prayers, austerities, or dispassion. If you just look with sincerity, you will see me in an instant. This very instant, Kabir said, because in medieval Indian religious poetry from all different groups, you, like you sort of sign off the last line of your poem, like you sign a painting. So Kabir says, Holy One, know that the Lord is the essence of breath itself. So that's a nice idea, sort of, that God is right there, you know, but to say he's, God is not in mosques, temples, the Kabar Kailas, well, I mean, anyway. Maybe he's trying to make a poetic point, but I think it may be a case of overstatement because huge numbers of people feel they do have genuine spiritual experiences in sacred places. And prayers, like, a lot of people feel that prayers actually work for them. So to say God's not in prayers uh, and, and trying to wean yourself off uh, materialism has nothing to do with finding God and establishing special houses of God to glorify God have nothing to do with finding God. Uh, it, it sounded to me like a bit of overstatement. Maybe he's just trying to make a poetic point. Maybe it's like poetic license. Maybe. 
So, uh, if there's no other questions, Friday, I'll try to get the paper. I, I will. I mean, even if I have to perform cruel and unusual austerities, I get papers back on Friday. <laughs> <laughs>